Amen. I have a particularly interesting relationship with rest. You guys might relate with this a little bit. It's kind of a weird, slippery thing. I'm always trying to figure out how to rest. What does that look like to rest? Maybe it has to do with my vocation. I don't know. I think, you know, if you're working a very physical job, rest is usually fairly easy to figure out. Just stop doing something physical, right? Um, My job is kind of weird. So I have a hard time resting. So Fridays are my Sabbath, and and let me give you just a little snippet of what my Friday looks like every Friday. Um, the, uh, the, The relentless pursuit of rest. I, I woke up this Friday morning on my Sabbath, and, I, and I, I didn't set my alarm because it's my Sabbath, right? It's great. So, so I wake up, and, uh, and I'm feeling pretty good about the day. I'm feeling like I'm ready to rest. Let's hurry up and rest. Come on, I'm going to rest today. Rest is going to happen, right? And, uh, and so I come out, and I sit on my couch, and then my, my sweet daughter comes out. She woke up before everybody else, just ready to go. And I'm like, hey, let's go on a date. So I grab her, and we jump in the car, and we go down to Wheelhouse Coffee, and I get her a cookie, and then we go to the park, and the day is just going really great. And I'm resting, and it's happening, right? And then a couple hours go on, and then I kind of start to feel this, like, you should be doing something. You know what I'm saying? You know the feeling? It's like this little voice inside that's like, what do you, you need to do something. Yeah, I know it's your Sabbath, but, like, there's raves, leaves that need to be raked, there's garbage that needs to be taken out, there's projects that need to be done. I go, yeah, but I really should be resting. And then I start stressing about whether I should rest or get stuff done, right? So I decide, well, I'll just do a few things, and then I can rest. Because once I do a few things, then I'll be, I'll be like, I can appease that little voice inside me telling me to do things. So I, I do a couple things, do a couple projects. But as I'm doing the projects, I'm looking around and I'm seeing more things that need to get done. Oh, man, I've been putting that off for months. Oh, man, the backyard's just getting out of control. Oh, man, those weeds in the front. I've really got to get to these things, right? I'll just do a few more things. So I just do a few more things. And finally, I'm so stressed and so anxious because I know I'm supposed to be resting and I'm not resting. So then I force myself to sit on this couch and watch a movie, but the whole time I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking I should be doing something. Does anyone relate with this? I mean, at the end of the day, and I haven't rested at all. You ever have a trip that you're so excited about? You're so, you've spent so much time preparing for it, and the, tri- the purpose of the trip is to rest. And if you're so attached to how you think this trip's going to go that the whole time you're stressing the trip and you never actually rest, you're just worried about all the details going wrong. <clears throat> rest is kind of a hard thing. It's a hard thing to figure out. It's what we're going to talk about uh, you know, this morning. You know, Jesus came to this earth to save us from a lot of things. He came to save us from sin. He came to save us from the enemy, the world, the flesh, the devil. And, and we, we know that. But one of the things that we hear less often that Jesus came to save us from is ourselves. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to save us um, from our own internal religious bondage that we tend to create within ourselves. Jesus came that we might have rest from all cruel masters, including yourself. You are a cruel master. To yourself. Did you know that? You're a cruel master. To, in fact, you're not a good master to yourself. And when you're tuned into your own self, you're, you're often taking advantage of yourself. <laughs> you're often putting bondage on yourself. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, you're familiar with the passage. He said, come to me, all who labor <clears throat> and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Where? For your souls. This deep rest. This is rest that goes beyond um, physically just laying or, or, or resting physically. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Notice he doesn't say that he doesn't have a burden. He, he does. Notice he doesn't say he doesn't have a yoke. He does, but his burden and his yoke is easy. His burden and his yoke is light. Now, when we read that, we, we tend to think about, um, you know, maybe in regards to forgiveness or something, because like Jesus wants to forgive our sins. Jesus is saying this statement really as a juxtaposition or a response to the bondage of the religion that Israel had created. See, Jesus didn't just come to Israel to save them from the enemy or from sin. He came to save them from religion. We have a world out there that needs to be saved from religion, not just secularism. We need saving from religion just as much as we need saving from secularism. Religion is bondage. It's just man-made bondage. That's what religion is. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, isn't this a church? 
Well, let me explain what I mean by religion as we work through the sermon. Today, our passage is a portrait of Jesus' rest versus religious bondage. Jesus' rest versus religious bondage. Now, before I open up the passage with you, and we're going to walk through it. It's kind of how we do that here. We walk through a text. Before we do that, I need to give you some, <clears throat> some insight into the baggage of a relationship. You know relationships have baggage? You ever notice that? You ever have a relationship with somebody and you say something and they freak out on you and you go, what was the deal with that? Well, they had baggage. They had something, you hit a nerve. There was something you didn't know about that they had. Well, Israel, the nation of Israel, I mean, if you want to read the Bible, you've got to know Israel because a lot of it's about Israel. Okay, the nation of Israel had relational baggage with this thing called Sabbath, rest. They had a, a, a real baggage with the relationship, with the, the idea of rest. Uh, James Edwards, he says this, most of the world's religions venerate sacred places. Islam honors Mecca, Hinduism, the Ganges River, Shintoism, the island of Japan. Judaism also venerated Jerusalem, especially the temple as a sacred space, but it venerated something far beyond that and perhaps above it, and that is time, the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest is the holy uh, landmark of Judaism, particularly in the time that Jesus comes into history. The Sabbath, you have to understand just how important the Sabbath was, this idea of Sabbath rest to the Jewish people if you're going to understand the passage that we're gonna look at this morning. Rest starts in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God makes creation for five days. He makes pretty much everything. And then on the sixth day, he makes man. He makes man on the sixth day. Why does he make man on the sixth day? To remind man that they didn't make everything. He did. Isn't it interesting that God created humans into rest? He said, the first thing I want you to do, Adam, is nothing. Because I want you to know that you're not in control. You didn't create the world. You don't get to dictate the world. You don't get to delineate the world. You are a creature, Adam, creature. That's your job, to be a creature and let God be the creator. So he creates Adam on the sixth day and then he tells Adam immediately, before he's even done any work, he tells him to rest by making the seventh day the Sabbath. And this became an eternal creative consecration of God's completed work that he made something and it was good and then God rested. And it reminds us forever that God is making something and at some point he will rest because he'll be done. Okay? So God took this. Now fast forward the clock, hundreds of years, and we now have this, age, this nation called Israel. God called Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, which were the 12 tribes. Now God is forming the theocracy, the nation under God. And as he's forming the theocracy, he makes a covenant with them. And so whenever you have a covenant, and if you have a wedding ring on, Whenever you make a covenant, there's a sign of the covenant. What was the, the sign God chose to represent the covenant between him and Israel? Sabbath, rest. He chose rest as the sign of the covenant. Why do you think? Why do you think? Well, maybe because he wanted them to know that they weren't in control. Maybe because he wanted them to know that he, Yahweh, actually was the boss, and he had already done the work, and their job was just to follow him. So he picks Sabbath, and he gives it to them. Now, there's a lot more to this. It's not just that he gave it to them as a symbol. See, Israel was in slavery, when God called them to the, into the theocracy, called them into become his nation. They were slaves to Egypt, remember? When you're a slave, particularly to Egypt, you don't get a day off, right? You don't get a day off. You don't get rest. You're a slave. You work all day, every day. God loved his people, so when he pulled his people out from under the world, Egypt, and sent them into their own land, the first thing he did is he says, I love you, and I want to give you a gift. It's called Rest. You will rest. And I can imagine that for the, those that had grown up under the grip and the oppression of Egypt, they went, thank you for that. Thank you for that rest. What a gift. But we often take God's gifts and we make them slavery, don't we? So even though God programmed into Israel to rest, um, as a way of keeping them from making more slaves. He even told the, the land and the animals, they all needed to rest. Every seventh year, you take a seventh year. Every 70th year, you take a year of jubilee. It was all built into the fibers of the system of God created for Israel. But within a matter of a couple generations, guess what happened? Israel decided they knew better than God. They decided they didn't need rest. They decided that uh, they would be much more productive if they didn't rest. You know, we could work seven days a week 
and we could get a lot more done, like the world, like the nations. So for the majority of Israel's history, they did not honor the Sabbath. And as far as I know, uh, they never took the Sabbath year. They never let the land rest. And for accumulation of 70 Sabbath years, Israel was in rebellion against God's covenant with them. And then guess what happened? God, like a good father, disciplined his children. He pulled them out of their home and he deported them into Babylon. Why did he do that? He did that so they could see what it looks like when you live in a pagan culture that doesn't rest. He did that so they could see what it looks like to live in a culture that doesn't honor God. He gave them a front row seat to cultural debauchery for 70 years. It's called the exile. Now, this is going somewhere. Follow me. So after the exile, they come back into their homeland, and guess what? Daniel and the prophet, he said, the reason they got exiled is because they didn't take the Sabbath. That's one of the big reasons, because it was a symbol of their rebellion, their lack of trust in God. So what do they do? They make sure that this time they don't break the Sabbath. And how do you do that? How do you make sure something doesn't happen? Rules. Lots of them. Lots of rules. Accountability. And that's what they did. For 400 years, all of the religious leaders, well, for very well-meaning reasons, they wrote volumes and volumes and volumes called Mishnah, giving uh, application in the particulars, contextualization of what Sabbath law meant. You want to read the verses on Sabbath, they're very short. You know what it says? God says, don't work on the Sabbath. That's pretty much it. The, the rabbis wrote volumes on what that meant. They took the gift of God and they turned it into a straitjacket. So instead of Egypt being the enslaver, now Israel's its own enslaver. It's exactly what we do, isn't it? Why? Because we like control. See, the reason they didn't take Sabbath was because they wanted to control the outcome. The reason that they obsessed over Sabbath is because they wanted to control the outcome. Listen to this. Systems that control or try to control God become systems that enslave men. Systems that try to control God inevitably become systems that control men. That is what false religion is. It is a man-made system that attempts to control God through behavior, through do's and don'ts, and in doing so, it always enslaves men and women into bondage. And many of you out there have been wounded by the bondage that religion creates. So this is the backstory of Israel's relationship with Sabbath. I want to read an excerpt from a commentary uh, that boils down, okay, again, we have uh, 24 chapters of Mishnah that were written on, how, on what the Sabbath um, laws were. And here's just a little bit of a breakdown of what some of these laws were. This is the time of Jesus. If you were to be a Jew during Jesus' day, these would be the kind of laws that the Pharisees would be pointing fingers at you expecting you to obey. Listen, no burden could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig. Okay. No burden could be carried uh, that weighed more than a dried fig. Or half a fig carried two times. Just in case you were wondering. If you put an olive in your mouth and reject it because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole one in the next time because the palate had tasted the flavor of a whole olive. It's important stuff. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the other hand, it was a sin. No juggling. If you caught in the same hand, it wasn't. So as long as you catch it in the same hand, for some reason, it, it wasn't a sin. If a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food at, let's say, 4.59, um, and the Sabbath overtakes him, oops, 6 o'clock, or oops, 5 o'clock, Sabbath started, you would have to drop the food and not return your arm. Or if you did, you'd be carrying a burden that would be sin. Do you think I'm making this up? I'm not. This is what the Mishnah said. This is what the religious people said that had to be done. You could not bathe for fear that when the water fell off of you, it might wash the floor. If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs couldn't be moved because they might make a rut. Women couldn't look in a glass or they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Women couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it would make it a pickle, and that's work. On and on and on and on and on it goes. 
burden. Burden. Slavery. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 7, he said, the Pharisees, they teach the traditions of men as though they are the doctrines of God. It was his indictment against the Pharisees, the scribes. They were the lawyers of the day. They were the slave owners of Israel. When I went to Israel, this kind of stuff still happens, by the way. When I went to Israel, uh, they do honor Sabbath there. And the Hasidic Jews, uh, the ones with the, the funny black hats and the curly, you know, on Sabbath, man, the whole, like, if you're in Jerusalem, the whole city just goes quiet. And there's this thing called the Sabbath elevator. Uh, when you go to Israel, it, it, it literally every, it stops at every floor. Why? Because on Sabbath, you can't push the button. That's work. So if you're a, 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 you know, a Hasidic Jew, you, you have to literally go down every single floor until you get to where you're trying to go. Unless there's some white American that's eating bacon next to you, um, you can jump on his elevator, let him push the button, he can go to hell for you, right? Okay, so that's, that's the idea there. And it's, this is still happening today. That's the legalism um, that's happening. Now, keeping all that in mind, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus gave us this amazing picture of wine and wineskins. And he said that nobody takes new wine and puts it in old wineskins because the old wineskin is brittle. It doesn't stretch. It doesn't give. It doesn't grow. And Jesus is saying, the work that I'm going to do is like this new wine. It's going to expand. And if this new wine gets put into the old wineskin, which is the the, the dead, frail tradition of men, it will burst the wineskin. You remember that? Today, we're going to see the wineskin get burst in half. That's what's going to happen today. You ever play the game Jenga? Okay, um, for those of you that don't live on this planet, um, you, you push blocks out and you take turns pushing blocks out and then you put the block on top and it gets higher and higher and higher and then finally at the very end, somebody pushes the wrong block and the whole thing comes down, you lose. That's Jenga. Jesus has been playing a game of Jenga with the scribes. Okay, he's been pushing on blocks. He's been, oh, here's a block, sinners and tax collectors, calls Matthew. Levi, the tax collector, he has dinner with a bunch of debauched uh, sinners. Uh, he, he doesn't follow the fasting rituals. He forgives sin. I mean, he's just block after block after block after block, and today he's going to push the last Jenga block, and it's the Sabbath. You mess with the wrong block, Jesus. This is the block that's going to bring the whole thing down. So we're going to see two Sabbath offenses here. The first is the Sabbath offense of eating, and the, seven, the, and the second is the Sabbath offense of healing. So let's dive right in. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Our story starts like any good story with a snack. Just like when you go to the movies, first thing you do is what? You get a snack, and it's going to be a good time. This story starts with a snack. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. So what day is it? Sabbath, just making sure you're listening. Okay. It's Sabbath. He's going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Okay? Um, Now, what are they doing here? This is a very common practice. It's called gleaning. God was kind. When he set up the theocracy, he made this law that you were to leave the corners of your field unharvested so that there would be somewhat of a a social safety net for people that couldn't provide for themselves or for travelers that were out. Now, Jesus is traveling preacher with his disciples. They're traveling, and it's on Sabbath, and they go out to glean the corners of the fields. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, that's what Ruth is doing in Boaz's field, right? So they're gleaning, and and that's totally legal. It's sort of the food stamps, the, the, the social safety net of the day. They're gleaning, and what they're doing is they're grabbing grain with their hands, and they're going like this, and then they're going, and it, and it separates the chaff from the wheat, and the, wheat, uh, the chaff gets blown away, and, uh, and then they stuff their face. It's, it's the modern-day equivalent of unwrapping your cheeseburger, right? Which, you know, some of you are really good at that. You know if you unwrap half of it, and then you eat it, then it won't drip on your hands, or you can be like me, and you can just stuff the whole thing in your face before it drips, which is kind of a game that I play with myself. Okay. So what they're doing here is they're getting a snack, they're, but, but according to the Pharisees, they're breaking Sabbath law because they are reaping, threshing, and winnowing all at once with their hands. Okay? So after we see the snack, we see the snark. In verse 24, as the Pharisees were saying to him, look what they are doing. What is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, is what they're doing not lawful on the Sabbath? Yes or no? No, it's not. It's not unlawful. 
It's not unlawful. They're, they're, they're totally within the bounds of Scripture. So Jesus fires back, and he does kind of in, in what would be a classical rabbinical tradition, he, he quotes Scripture in order to set a precedent. He, says, uh, he said to them in verse 25, have you never read, which by the way, that statement was a slap in the face to guys that had the Scripture memorized in probably multiple languages, okay? Uh, he says, have you ever read, in other words, hey, have you read your Bible lately? Have you never read what David, your hero, King David, the gold standard, what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So, so Jesus is citing a scriptural reference, if you want to read it later, 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, in which David, King David, it's, it's in his sort of vagabond, uh, um, you know, he's, he's running from Saul, he's an, he's an outlaw, running from Saul, period, and he's got his mighty men and Saul wants him dead, and he stops off at the tabernacle with the priest, or, and, and he says, hey, you know, we, we have need. We need food. And they say, we don't have any food. And he's like, what about the bread that's consecrated for the Lord? And they're like, well, that's consecrated for the Lord. And he's like, well, we're pure. And so David eats the bread. And guess what? Scripture never says anything bad about it. So what's Jesus' point? He's saying, hey, your homie, David, the guy you guys all look up to, he did something way worse than this, and the Scripture never rebuked it. The precedent is set there. What's the point? The point is very simple. Listen, human need is higher than religious ritual. Human need is higher than religious ritual. That's what Jesus is getting at there. It's what the scripture constantly states. And then Jesus explains. He says in verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, Jesus isn't just swinging at a caricature here. The, the rabbis literally preached that man was made to honor the Sabbath. That's your, that's your ontolos. That's your purpose in life, is to honor Sabbath. That's what the Pharisees believed. Now, Jesus is challenging the interpretation of these biblical scholars with multiple doctrines. Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, says, actually, you know, you interpreted that completely wrong. God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. You got it backwards. Isn't it just so typical of man to try to live for something less ultimate than God? What do you exist for? For Sabbath. Uh, no, you exist for God. Sabbath was a gift from God. Stop worshiping your gifts. Stop worshiping things that God made. Worship creator, not creation. And then verse 28, Jesus says an astounding statement. Look at it. So the Son of Man, that is him, is Lord, that is sovereign, even of the Sabbath. Paraphrase, Jesus is saying, you know how I know this? Because I invented it. I'm the architect. I created it. I made the thing. You want to know what Sabbath is for? I made it. I was there. On the seventh day, when myself, Jesus would say, within the Godhead, made a decision within our own wise counsel, our own wise eternal counsel, to create a seven-day consecration of rest so that God's created universe would know its place, that it's, a, it's, it's creature, not creator. I was there when we made the idea, right? God's like, I invented rest. That was my idea. I made it. I had this, this thing called the AeroPress coffee maker. It's really cool. It kind of looks like a science experiment. I first got it. I didn't know how to use it. And, and my, my buddy Cody, um, he showed me how he thought he was supposed to use it, but no one ever really taught him how to use it. So I was using it the way he thought he was supposed to use it. And then I got on YouTube, and all these people are like, this is how you use it. This is how you use it. This is how you use it. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And then I found the directions. And it turns out we were using the thing completely wrong. So I start using it according to... It's created design. Jesus is saying, I'm sovereign over this thing. I made it. You need to ask me what I think about Sabbath. Now we get our second Sabbath interaction in verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue. That's the place of gathering for the Jews where they would gather and read scripture, uh, similar to what we do here. Uh, he entered in the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. The word withered there means stiff or deformed. Uh, in essence, it's a hand that cannot be stretched, okay? Like the wineskins, right? It's, it's, it's rigid, it can't stretch, uh, has no plasticity in it, it's deformed. So uh, for this man, this would be a point of shame for him. 
something he would have kept hidden most of the time. It would have probably meant, ironically, that he probably couldn't work. Interesting. Side note. So this, there's this man in the synagogue. In verse 2, the plot thickens. They watched Jesus, who's they, the scribes. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And you've got to ask yourself the question, did they plant this guy there? Did they take this poor man and put him in the synagogue just in hopes that this might be the slam dunk moment where they can say, ha, gotcha. This man's being extorted. Rather than them caring for his well-being, they're just using him in order to set up Jesus so they can shut him down. Now, there is no scriptural basis that, can keep, that should prohibit Jesus from healing this man. None at all. There's no scripture, you won't find it in the Old Testament that says, you shall not heal on the Sabbath. <clears throat> the Pharisees had their law that said, if you were a doctor, you could heal on the Sabbath only if the person was going to die. So you can give mouth to mouth on the Sabbath. You can shock with those little shocky things. But if somebody's shoulder's dislocated, you can't, you can't set it till the next day. How kind of the Pharisees. They were so kind. Weren't they good shepherds? Were they just such loving religious leaders? No, they weren't. They were terrible. So verse three, first chapter, th- or chapter three, verse two, the, the, the nightmare comes real for this man with a withered hand. Jesus said to the man, you with the withered hand, and I guarantee he was tucked back in the crowd. You with a withered hand, come here. You ever have a moment like that where you get singled out? <laughs> it's terrifying. Nobody likes being singled out unless it's for a good thing. He singles this man out. He says, come up here. And this is really important um, And I just need you guys to recognize that Jesus chooses this man's pain to be the stage to have a very important conversation. And it's very likely that God may at some point in your life choose your pain to become a stage to glorify himself. But can I just remind you that he's very kind in the way that he does this? He's a very gentle touch. So he calls this man's pain to become the stage for this conversation. In verse four, Jesus asks a very simple question. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Very easy question. The answer obviously should be the Sabbath, good. Let's do good on the Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath is for. Okay, that's a very easy question. But what do they say? They say nothing. They're silent. They're silent. They're silent because they know if they answer yes, that they cannot entrap Jesus because by their own words, they've undone undone their plot. If they say no, they sound like tyrants. They don't want to be exposed as tyrants, so they don't say anything. Did you know, just a side note here, did you know that silence is an answer? If you're trying to remain silent on what you think about Jesus Christ, that's an answer. It's an answer of denial. It's denying that he's Lord. Now, it's okay to question. It's okay to try to figure that out, but at some point, silence does become an answer. A vote of silence is a, is a vote against, essentially. So they're, they're silent. They don't <clears throat> answer. And then verse 5, Jesus says something really hard to this guy. He says he looks around at them with anger. Who's he angry at? He's angry at the scribes. He's angry at the scribes. You know, we think of Jesus, we just think of his nice, long, flowing hair. This is like Mormon Jesus, right? He's white. He's pale white, kind of anorexic looking. He's long, flow. He uses conditioner. You know, that's not what Jesus looked like. He was a short, brown Jewish man, okay? And he was a man's man. He had calluses on his hand. He was a carpenter. And he's angry right now. He's angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because these guys have put this man in a straitjacket, and he wants to set him free. He's angry because his people are in prison. They're in the prison of a man-made religious institution, and he wants them out. He's angry for the the same reason he flips over tables in the temple in a matter of months, right? He's angry because the system that God made to create freedom has been mechanized and weaponized as a system to create bondage, and that makes Jesus angry. Makes him angry. He's not angry at, 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 at the withered hand, the man with the withered hand. He's angry at the wolves that are devouring his sheep. He's angry at them. And then he says, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, now stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And I can imagine in my imagination that when Jesus does this, he's not looking at the withered hand, he's looking at the scribes with consternation. 
and condemnation. And he says, stretch forth your hand. And he does it to spite them. Despite their lack of compassion and their, 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 their deep hatred towards this man for even being sick in the first place. Jesus heals this man in spite of the religious enslavers. He tells him to stretch out his hand. Did you notice that? He can't. <laughs> you catch he can't stretch out his hand. It's withered. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And this guy's thinking, oh my goodness, I can't do that. I can't do that. Let me give you just a few quick side notes on faith. Faith is stretching when you know you can't, but he says you can. And you gotta ask yourself, when did the healing come? I think it, it came as soon as he started to stretch. As soon as he said, okay, I'm gonna believe you. That's when the healing, you want healing? Start to believe God. He will create wholeness in you as you begin to trust him. He doesn't give it all in advance. He gives it to you as he needs it. Faith is obediently risking exposure to obtain wholeness. This man could have said, no, I'm too scared. Too frightening. Can't stretch my hand out. It's too embarrassing. Too much shame. But he doesn't. He trusts the Lord. He stretches out his hand, and because of that, it's healed. Faith is offering up your greatest shame to become his greatest masterpiece. That's what faith is. God, I'm going to give you my broken witheredness, my broken withered life, and I'm going to let you transform it into something that's a masterpiece. That's what faith is. <clears throat> Verse six, the Pharisees went out. Remember I said last Jenga block? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Those are politicians that were pro-Herod. Held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Wineskin ripped. They can't handle it anymore. Jesus hit the Jenga block of Sabbath, and now they want him dead. So much so that they would collaborate with the enemy. So much so they would collaborate with a political party. These are the religious elite collaborating with a political elite for a mutual purpose, a mutual destruction of Jesus. So that's our text. What do we do with it? What's the big idea here? So in our story, now tune in with me. In our story, we have captives. The man with the withered hand, he's captive. He's captive to this, this, this religious uh, framework uh, of slavery. We have the disciples, captives. They're captive to this religious bureaucracy that's, that's sitting here pointing fingers, condemning them for having a snack on the road. We have captors. And then we have captives. I got that backwards. We have captives, and then we have captors, right? We have captors. We have the scribes, those that are taking captive. And then we have a savior. We have captives, we have a captor, and we have a savior. Which one are you? Which one are you? Well, you're not the savior. Sorry. That role's already taken. You're not the savior. Which one are you? I would suggest to you that you're both. You are the captive, and you're the captor. You have an inner scribe. Did you know that? An inner Pharisee that follows you around everywhere you go and points a finger in your face and says, foul, wrong, you messed up, you screwed up, you gotta do this differently. You are also a captive and you're also the captor. We hold ourselves in bondage by adopting complex eternal or internal systems of self-justification and self-condemnation. And self-glorification. Inside of you, you know, ever seen the movie Inside Out? There's little people in your brain. Inside of you, there's a courtroom. And guess what? If you're not believing the gospel, you are both the accused, the accuser, and the judge. That's what religion is. Inside of your brain every day, you are putting yourself on trial. You're accusing yourself. And then you're either justifying yourself, excusing yourself, or condemning yourself. We all do it all day long. What this reminds us of is that God wants to give us rest internally. And when Jesus says, I want to put my yoke on you, I think he's talking about a different kind of rest than just a physical rest. Now let me ask you guys, are you at rest? Are you at rest? I don't mean physically. I know you're sitting down right now. Are you at rest? Is your soul at rest? Do you have soul rest? Do you have Sabbath in your life? Or is rest actually something you haven't been able to obtain? What is the Sabbath law in your story? What is the thing that has been weaponized against you to keep you from Christ, to keep you from rest? And are you ready for the truth of Jesus to inform your interpretation of your own Sabbath law? 
Are you ready for the truth of Jesus to come in and free you from your own self-condemnation today? I hope so, because that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time, just about 10 to 15 minutes here, looking at. Jesus came that you might have rest. And for the rest of our time, I want to hopefully unpack for you guys what that looks like to have rest in Jesus, what that looks like to have rest in Christ. Now, first of all, let's start here. How do you know if you've created an internal system of burden? How do I know? How do I know if I have my inner Pharisee creating some kind of a religious system inside of myself that's holding me captive? How do I know? I'm going to give you some questions, and I want you to write them down. Some questions that you can use to interact, to interface with your own condemnation, with your own weight, with your own burden, to figure out if you're enslaved, okay? Here they are. Question number one, and I call this question the naked in the garden question. It's the naked in the garden question. It's kind of a fun one, because if you want to have your uh, friends hold you accountable, you say, hey, ask me, ask me next time we meet, who told you you were naked? It's the, it's the who told you you were naked question. Uh, here's where I'm getting at. So in Genesis, remember, uh, man had dwelt with God. Everything was fine. Man wasn't ever afraid of God, never hid himself from God. And then something happened, sin entered the picture, and everything was fractured and broken. And all of a sudden, God comes to Adam like he always did every other day, and Adam's not there. Where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding. Why is he hiding? Because he's ashamed. He's ashamed of something. And so God finds him, and he says, where you been, man? Paraphrasing. Uh, and Adam says, I hid myself because I'm naked. And God said this, listen, who told you you were naked? That's important words. Who told you that? Where did you get this idea? It wasn't from God. It was foreign. It was external. It was the enemy, the enemy told him he was naked. And so, so now there's this barrier between you and God based off of some lie. So when you're feeling internal condemnation, when you're feeling internal weight, when you're feeling internal slavery, your inner Pharisee is pointing a finger in your face, I want you to stop and ask the question, who told me I was naked? Who said, is this sourced in shame or is this sourced in the gospel? Is this sourced in me feeling like, like I'm missing something? Or is this sourced in what God has said to be true? Here's the second question. The do versus am question. The do versus am question. It's this. It's, <clears throat> is this feeling rooted in something I did or something I'm afraid that I am? It's really important. Don't tune out on me. Listen. Is this question I'm feeling in my heart, this thing that's coming up in my emotion, is this rooted in a thing I'm doing or a fear that I may be something or someone I don't want to be? There's a very big difference. You do something wrong, okay, you're human, and you feel the weight of that. You can deal with that action, but what's much harder to deal with is the feeling that perhaps I'm an imposter. Perhaps something's wrong with me. Perhaps, I, perhaps my identity is broken. Those are the things that, you, that, that, that become inner courtrooms that just cycle on and on and on. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Those are the fears that, that control me. And they're not fears informed by God. They're fears informed by me. You know, but perhaps there's something wrong with me. Perhaps I don't measure up. Have you guys heard of this imposter syndrome? <laughs> perhaps I'm an imposter. Perhaps I'm not who I think I am. Again, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Is God telling you that? Or are you imposing that on yourself? Here's another one, the unmeasurables question. Ask this, is this demand that I'm feeling, is it nebulous? In other words, is it lacking a measurable outcome? <laughs> you ever have those nagging feelings throughout the day? I just feel the need, remember my story in the beginning, the need to do something. I don't know why. I don't know when I've done enough. I don't know how long do I need to do this before I can feel at rest. Okay? That's not God. God calls us kindly to do very specific things, not nebulous unmeasurables. Number four, the illegal immigration question. The illegal immigration question. This is the question, is this burden foreign to my own context? Has this burden been imported from someone else's convictions? See, here's what happens. Someone has a blessing in their life, and then they export that blessing, and it becomes a curse on your life. I get up and read my Bible for two hours every morning. What a blessing. That's awesome. Now what am I feeling? This internal weight of maybe I should be reading my Bible for two hours every morning. It's not a bad thing. But that's foreign to, that was God, that was God, something God had called that person to do. The inner scribe would point the finger at me and say, see, you should be doing that. Has God said? 
Who told you you were naked? Who said you're supposed to be doing that? God didn't tell you to do that. Good for you. Which watch for those things? And last thing, the mechanistic, legalistic question. Ask this, am I feeling this because I'm afraid that my action or my inaction will either curate or lose God's blessing? That's called legalism. You feel this weight come up from inside and you think, well, if I don't act on it, God might not bless me. That's legalism. Okay, I'm giving you these questions because I want to help give you tools to interact with your own sin, to interact with your own unbelief, to interact with your inner scribe who's pointing a finger in your face every day, putting a yoke on you that is not the yoke of Christ. Now, let me say this. That is not to say that to be a Christian means there is no burden. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. God does burden his people. But how do we know if it's God's burden and how do we know if it's our own burden? How do we know if it's Jesus and how do we know if it's our own internal scribe? Let me, let me give you just to point out a few things. For the believer, burden leads to repentance, not condemnation. If you have a burden in your life and you've repented of it and you're still feeling the weight of it, even though you've changed your mind, changed your action, that is your inner Pharisee. It's not the Lord. For the believer, burden is confirmed by scripture, not human interpretation of men. That's why we need to know our Bibles. So we can delineate whether God has put this burden on me. Is this a good burden? Some burdens are good. You go to the gym and you push up that bar with weight on it. That's a good burden. Why? Because it's, it's focusing energy into your muscles. It's going to build your strength. Intense gravity, what's the point of that? Nothing, right? So, so the, the reality is, is there's good burden, there's bad burden. For the believer, burden yields peace. Listen, this is so important. For the believer, burden yields peace in obedience. Legalistic burdens yield more guilt. You ever tap and say, okay, God, I'm gonna obey. And you obey, and then instantly it's not enough. And you have to do something else. And you have to do something else. And you have to do something else. And you're in this cycle of constantly trying to appease your inner Pharisee. Listen to me. That's not God. God is kind. He wants you to repent so that you can be re have relief. And when you repent, relief should come. If relief doesn't come, then you're not believing the gospel. You're believing the enemy. Who told you you were naked? Who are you listening to? Who's in your head? Jesus came to save us from our own internal religious systems that we build, and they're complex. They're so complex, you probably don't even know how deep it runs in your own psyche. And the Holy Spirit <clears throat> wants to do the work of unearthing those belief systems within you and replacing them with his yoke, his gospel. It takes time, by the way. It takes a lot of time. I know this applies to you guys because I hang out with you during the week. Okay. Now, let me end with this. The question is, how does Jesus change our burden to rest? How does Jesus change our burden to the rest? And I want to just point out three things in the text that I think we need to remember, and then we'll, we'll break into some discussion. How does Jesus change our burden to rest? Three ways, jot them down. He's, he uh, first cleans up, he speaks up, and he calls up. He cleans up, he speaks up, and he calls up. First, he cleans up. It's worth noting here that in the text, Jesus doesn't just correct false doctrine, he heals. Okay, it's not enough to just correct false doctrine. Jesus actually wants to heal you from the inside out. And the only way that you're gonna be set free from your inner Pharisee is if you let God do the work of building integrity within you and changing you from the inside out. And the good news about the gospel is, is the gospel actually changes you from the inside out. It can heal you from your own internal bondage. It does it this way. First thing God does in you and he cleans you up is he becomes your Sabbath. He becomes your Sabbath. What do I mean by that? See, Jesus came to fulfill the Sabbath. Why do we not have a legalistic Sabbath law in the New Covenant? Well, some Christians do. But why do we not? Because we believe that according to the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. Where do we find rest? We don't find it in rigid rules and regulations. We find rest in him. And what that means is that he lived the perfect life so you could have the perfect day off. Can I say that again? He lived the perfect life so that you can have the perfect day off. That's what you need to preach to yourself. When you're feeling internal weight, your inner Pharisee is going off, you need to say, you know what, Jesus lived the perfect life for me. 
and now I rest, I Sabbath in him. Jesus is the seventh day. And your new covenant relationship in him is Sabbath rest. You need a Sabbath life. You, need, you do need a Sabbath day, by the way. That's practical. But you need a Sabbath life. You need a Sabbath mindset. The Sabbath mindset is the mindset who is, who is, is fully accepting of God's perfect righteousness imputed to them. See, I stop looking at my own works. I stop every day with my inner Pharisee questioning, am I doing enough? Should I do more? And I say, Jesus has done enough for me. Now what do I get to do? It's very different. Not only uh, does he complete our works by becoming our Sabbath, he terminates our relationship with the law. Did you know that? You're dead, if you're a Christian, you're dead to the law. Law, dead. Don't believe me? Read the book of Romans. Paul makes explicitly clear that when you become a Christian, you die to your old spouse and you get married to a new one and it's Jesus. And what that means is that you don't go to the law looking for justification anymore. You go to Christ. He is the one you interact with now. He is your pastor. He is your chief shepherd. He's the one that leads you kindly. Jesus came to replace the law with himself. We come to him. It's a relationship with him. Christianity 101. You now live in this dance with Jesus, constantly coming to him, coming to him with your burdens, coming to him with your sin, coming to him with your successes, coming to him with your feelings. Every day, it's a relationship with a person, your intercessor, Jesus Christ. And here's the really good news about the gospel. The really good news is that Jesus loves you too much to leave you with just accountability. He wants to transform you into integrity. And there's a very big difference between the two. See, accountability is about restraining evil. Integrity is about doing the right thing even when you don't have to. And the new covenant relationship is Jesus is working in you integrity. He's changing your desire so that it's not that I have to restrain my sin, it's that I don't even want it anymore because Jesus is so much better. That's why we don't need 26 chapters of Mishnah about how to honor Sabbath because the spirit lives within us and has changed our desires. That's why the gospel's good news. It's relief from the burden of the law and it changes your affections to want Jesus, to want to follow after him. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You could read that one way. Oh shoot, if I'm not obeying his commandments, I probably don't love him. Or if I love Jesus, I'll obey his commandments. I want to. Changes my affections. So Jesus cleans up. The second thing I want you to see though is that Jesus calls up. Jesus calls up. This is the rest of transparency. I want you to think about it in our text just briefly. Jesus loves this guy with a withered hand. He loves him way too much to let him live in ambiguity and secrecy. He wants this guy to be free from being stuck in hiding. He wants him to be free from being stuck in hiding. So what does he do? He calls him out of the, 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 illusion, the illusion of secrecy in the crowd and he calls him into the public stage. And he does that in order to heal him. Now, I just want to make a quick point on this here. If you're dealing with your inner courtroom every day, your inner complexity of your own religious system, your inner Pharisee, you need to open that up to the Lord and to other people within the body of Christ. Because what Satan wants you to do is he wants to isolate you, hiding your withered hand under your cloak in fear and shame not letting the body interact with your, your shortcomings, not letting people speak gospel truth over you. He, he wants to keep you in a place where you don't think you can be made whole. But what I want you to see in this text is that Jesus graciously and kindly pulls this man out of the crowd and singles him out in a very compassionate way in order to make him whole. If you're here, you didn't come here to be part of a crowd. This is not a crowd-minded church. You need to be made whole. And the way that you be made whole is that you open up your inner courtroom and let other believers speak truth into it. You open up your inner courtroom and you let God speak truth into it. And stop fighting these battles by yourself. So many Christians in the West live individualistic Christian lives completely alone, completely apart from other believers. You need the body. You need to be drawn out. And can I just ask you really quick, and I don't, don't respond, um, What's your withered hand? What's the thing that every day it comes up in your mind? You need to bring that to Christ and consider bringing that to the body and let his gospel heal you. And one last point, 
Not only does he just call up and clean up, he speaks up. He speaks up. This is a very important point. Don't miss me. On verse 23 of chapter 2, I want you to see that when the disciples are having a snack, Jesus isn't. Did you notice that? And when the Pharisees start accusing, I want you to see what Jesus does. He speaks up for them. He advocates for them. He fights for them against their inner Pharisee. Can I just tell you, Jesus wants to advocate for you against your inner Pharisee. And he has. It's right here. Not only is he sitting at the right end of the Father in a position of fighting for you, he has spoken the truth so that you can know it. The truth will set you free. Amen. The truth will set you free. This is his advocacy. Do you hear me? This is his advocacy. If you're struggling with believing lies, if you're struggling with inner condemnation, read his words. Let the gospel set you free because he has spoken up for you. And the enemy is a paraplegic. He can't do anything but talk. So shut him up with the truth of Jesus Christ. Shut him down with the power of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus' life that has been imputed to you if you believe it. And live in the yoke of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, your greatest testimony to the world is not how religious you are, it's how at rest you are. That's the thing the world can't synthesize. I know a lot of people that do a lot of really good things. They're not Christians. But one thing I know for sure is they do not have rest. There's no rest because they're still fighting their inner courtroom every week. How much do I have to do before I can feel free? The Christian is free. The Christian should be at rest. And that's your greatest witness to the world is the rest that you have. Christians, unlike any other religion, are truly at rest because we have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, and everything to give because everything has been given unto us. You are the captive this week. My commission to you is to start tuning into that. It could be that there's someone out there pointing their finger at you. Probably not. You're your own worst enemy. You're the reason you feel condemnation. I I know that because that's how I am. Half the time I'm anxious about something I think I should be doing. Who told me that? I did. I told myself I should be doing that. Fight your inner scribe and fight it with the gospel this week. Amen?